Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of Brighter Talks. Brighter Talks is a podcast series where we dive deep on subjects affecting how our cities are growing and changing. In each episode, we talk to an industry expert, an architect, a scientist, a mobility director, for example. And together, we explore ideas and innovations that could create a brighter future for our cities, making them more efficient, sustainable, or livable places. I'm your host, Greg Lindsay, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Angel Sue. Angel is a professor and data wizard who applies data-driven methods to solve some of the most pressing environmental issues of our time, such as climate change and air pollution. In today's episode, we're going to be tackling some pretty big questions together, like what is data science? How can data be used to find climate change solutions? What obstacles do we face in translating information into action? And how will the relationship between data and energy production change in the future? So I hope you'll stick around to discover all the fascinating answers that Angel has in store for us. Thank you for joining us, Angel. Thanks so much for having me. So you're currently a, an assistant professor of social sciences at Yale Nuss College, which is a joint venture with the National University of Singapore, where you live. And you're also the founder of Data Driven Lab, which is an interdisciplinary group that applies quantitative approaches to major environmental issues. But before we dive into your work, can you tell us a bit about your background? I mean, what, what sparked your interest in exploring environmental issues? And was data science always part of that plan? I think I've always had an appreciation and fascination with the natural world since I was a small child growing up in South Carolina and spending all of my summers and free time outdoors. And so I've always had this very strong interest in the environment. And I remember one of my sixth grade science projects was looking at the greenhouse gas effect. And that was one of my first exposures to climate change as an issue. And then I think once you understand the science of climate change and what's happening and humans' role in warming the planet, there's really no looking back. And so um, that led me to my doctoral dissertation research, where I really started to understand how environmental policies for many decades have not necessarily been driven by evidence or data, but instead have been driven by hunches or feelings about particular issues or driven by politics or sentiment and emotion. And so that's when I really sought to get more training in some quantitative techniques, particularly data science that would help me bring that type of quantitative rigor to environmental policies to address issues like climate change. Yeah, no, you once said that, you know, that you work between the push and pull of data science and public policy. And I mean, what exactly does it mean then to be an environmental data scientist and, and which data points do you highlight and how do you go about compiling it? That's a great question. So as an environmental data scientist, I basically feel that my job is to translate relevant scientific data into usable information that policymakers can use to better implement solutions for environmental issues. So I don't think that data and information are necessarily the same. I mean, the world is absolutely deluged in data today, but um, it doesn't mean that you necessarily know what to do with that data or what are the relevant insights that you can derive from all these numbers that are flooding us every single day. Um, and so I find that it's my job as an environmental data scientist to then take that raw data, those raw numbers and measurements, and try to translate them into some type of usable information or insight, some sort of signal that policymakers can apply to understand whether or not policies are performing, for example, or perhaps we can develop new models to better understand interactions between natural systems and policies, or perhaps it's a task of trying to create new data sets that shed light on issues that um, were not previously as well understood. 
Interesting. What do you take as sort of the articles of faith as an environmental data scientist? I mean, as you mentioned, you know, we have, we're, we're drowning in information around climate change, for example. And, you know, we have multiple reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We would seem to have the data, and yet we have yet to galvanize the change. Do you believe that it's, that we simply need more, that we simply need the right way? Where does information and emotion intersect? That's a really tough question. I mean, I think that um, we know that numbers and data just in and of themselves don't motivate people to take action. So I think um, the translational component, the communication, the storytelling is equally as important as what I do as a scientist, which is to develop the algorithms, to develop the models and the analysis to try to make that information usable. So, I mean, I think that that's really the responsibility that I have and I think scientists have in general is how do we take this information that we dedicate our lives to and try to relate it to the public and to people who can actually take that information and make a change. And that's really hard to do. I mean, there's so many times when I embark upon a research endeavor or a question and study and think, oh, this analysis is really going to be great. And all I need to do is put it on a website or publish it in an academic journal. And all of a sudden people will know what to do with that. And that's simply not the case. And um, I think in the U.S. context where I'm from, you particularly see some of these debates happening in real time where it doesn't matter how much information there is on climate change and how established the science is. You mentioned the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, for which I'm also a contributing author. And even though 99% of the scientists in the world believe that climate change is happening and it's due to human-induced causes, it still has not spurred any action on a national level in the U.S. And so I think that's where you see this tension between, as you said, emotion and the science and the data coming at odds with each other. And so that's really that's really tough. And so what I've learned in, in my research is how can we develop the relevant metrics and insights and the signals through all that data noise to be able to communicate a clear story. And I think it is a responsibility of academics like myself to take that extra step and try to communicate it. But that's a lot easier said than done. Yeah. So what are some of those metrics then? Because it's, you know, I'm a journalist by training. And so to me, I attach myself to the various news stories from around the world at any given moment, for example, of, you know, Sydney with brush fires, the sky's pink, uh, or in California, of course, the, the, the local utility shutting down the grid, plunging people into darkness because of wildfire season. We see all of these alarming reports, incredible imagery. Um, but as a scientist who has access to deeper trend data and historical data, what are the relevant metrics to you? And what are the most interesting data data points to you? What are you seeing that, that doesn't make the headlines? It's difficult when you take a look at a lot of the environmental data trends or the vital signs of the planet and uh, to not get totally depressed because um, we're in right now what scientists have called the great acceleration. So we're seeing a lot of indicators like air pollution, for example, at some of the highest levels they've ever been. So more than 90% of the world is breathing unsafe air. Carbon dioxide emissions, it just came out two weeks ago that we're at the highest levels they've ever been in history. And um, more people are living in cities than ever before. And that's potentially leading to greater pollution levels and concentrations of uh, air and water and, and climate pollution. We're losing species and biodiversity at unprecedented rates. I mean, in addition to those startling issues of fires that you just mentioned, uh, in Southeast Asia, we're losing so much primary forest um, by the day and also subject to, to very steep rates of deforestation in Brazil, for example. And so I think a lot of these trends are really depressing. Um, but I think when we talk about the climate and energy domain, which is where I work most closely, 
we're seeing some contrasting trends and signals, which I find to be perhaps um, more interesting. So on the one hand, this is the depressing news. Um, I mentioned global greenhouse gas emissions that cause global warming are on the rise and show no signs of peaking. And we have less than a decade to meet our goal of having global emissions by 2030. And then we need to bring those emissions down to zero by 2050. And and so far, we don't see any real decline in sight. I mean, emissions were supposed to peak by next year. And the last three years, they've only climbed. And so I think that particular data signal is, is pretty depressing. And then if we look at what governments have pledged to the Paris Agreement in 2015, and we add up all those different commitments and and look at the different reductions and aggregate that all together, we're essentially on track to a 3.6 degree warming world by 2100. So that's way overshooting the 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius temperature rise goal. So I think these are some of the trends and particularly in the data that I work with that I find to be particularly depressing. But the good news is that then you look at trends in clean energy. And now clean energy such as solar and wind power are more cost effective than coal in many parts of the world, including the U.S. And so it just makes good economic sense for countries to invest in these technologies rather than to continue to prop up dying coal and fossil fuel industries. And so I think that's really promising. And that's an incredible trend that I'm hoping that more people become more aware of just by looking at the data because when you look at it, it just makes more economic sense to take advantage of that kind of investment. So I think uh, also in relation to that particular trend, you're seeing still that around 6% of global GDP is still subsidizing fossil fuels. And so in order to take full advantage of these advances in clean energy and the enormous growth uh, potential, then we need governments to really stop subsidizing this fuel source that's both damaging to the environment and to people's health. Yes, I was, I was about to say, you've, you know, you've seized upon the energy area, which is one where policymakers really sort of have responded to the data. And, and I'm curious, you know, it, beyond the issues you laid there about subsidies and, a great, and the incredible advances in clean energy, you know, again, you're based in Singapore. So you're nestled uh, with the, some of the fastest urbanizing regions on the planet around you in Southeast Asia. And we know that global energy demand will be driven by urbanization in the global south. So I'm curious, how do you think data is going to come into play there and in, in influencing policymakers outside the United States, in India, in uh, Bangkok, China, of course, which has responded to air pollution data incredibly forcefully mandating strict laws. There seems to be a, a responsiveness in many nations uh, to using data to drive policy this way. So are, are you hopeful about them as well? Absolutely. And I think you really hit on some of the key trends here. Most of the urbanization that is expected to happen in the next decade is going to happen in India and China alone, where you're seeing huge migration from rural areas into cities. And then also all of the increase in coal and oil is basically also coming out of this region and particularly in Southeast Asia where I'm based. And so there's a lot of these trends that are happening and and converging right in this region where you have a significant proportion of the global population. And so I think there's a lot of appetite for really understanding the data and the trends. And then where I hope that they can then take this information is to actually learn from the mistakes of industrialized countries in the West and be able to leapfrog and to avoid what's often referred to as carbon or energy lock-in. So I think that's really clear when you compare dense urban settlements in Europe to what we have in the United States, which was really developed around highways and car manufacturers. And uh, now that's locked many of U.S. cities into these really carbon-intensive and energy-intensive urban development modes where you have to be in cars to get anywhere. And so I'm hopeful that here in Southeast Asia, we can, we can take 
a look at these lessons and understand these development trajectories and simply try to leapfrog them. Um, so we understand that clean energy sources like wind and solar are more cost-effective for countries in the long run, um, and that while coal and fossil fuels, for example, seem cheap in the short term, they actually have much greater long-term social and environmental costs that often go unaccounted for. And so I think Singapore is like a really good example of how you can have a, um, a country. Well, I mean, Singapore is unique in that it's, it's more like a city-state, but I think it's a, it's a good model for how the government has been really intentional and creating this garden city in a state and fostering um, great green spaces and tree cover and, and to try to combat climate change effects and the urban heat island impact. And then also focusing on transit oriented design where they've incorporated multiple modes of transit to make it easy for people to take public transit. And so I think there are some models that we can see developing here out of Southeast Asia that, that hopefully can also take root in other places. Yes, listeners may be interested to know as well that when China's leaders set out to learn from Singapore how to adopt their policies, they chose the form of building cities together, a handful of demonstration cities to figure out how to employ those policies. So it's quite interesting. Um, but this this conversation reminds me you know, uh, of an example you gave in your TED Talk a few years ago uh, about the connection between the release of a documentary called Under the Dome in China and then the government's efforts, its determination to really tackle the root of its air pollution, uh, which, of course, you know, coal-fired coal energy generation and its various uh, heavy industries uh, and bringing in wind energy. And, and for listeners who aren't familiar with this, I was hoping you'd talk us a bit uh, about that connection because I think it illustrates what you were saying earlier about, you know, translating data into storytelling and, and vice versa, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Under the Dome was a documentary about the social and personal effects of China's air pollution. And it was really likened to a silent spring moment for China. So for those who might be unfamiliar with Silent Spring, this was a seminal work of Rachel Carson in the 1960s in the United States. And she was able to use data and information to establish the fact that pesticides that were being used in agriculture were accumulating in food chains and affecting public health. And so in China, the Silent Spring or Under the Dome moment began when former CCTV host Tai Jing, who was the narrator and creator of the documentary, did a really powerful job at trying to connect the audience to air pollution's impacts by drawing on her personal experience with air pollution and making the the issue of air pollution relevant for every individual in the audience. And I think that's what made her story particularly powerful. She started by talking about, I was not aware of air pollution, and then I was about to have a baby and he was born with a tumor on his lung. And then that made me think about, well, what is it that I'm breathing? And, and what is the government not telling me about air pollution? And so it really unveiled the full extent and the personal connection of air pollution in China. Um, so they're acting on, on air pollution and addressing climate change because when you shift away from coal-fired energy, which currently comprises about 85% of the, the source of China's electricity, and you shift to cleaner energy sources like wind and solar, for example, then you're cleaning up the air. Already, air pollution has taken an incredible death toll on the country. Five million people die prematurely in China from air pollution. Globally, it's the number one um, environmental risk factor to mortality. And so it's a huge issue in China. And so I think this documentary did a really great job at heightening awareness in China about the air pollution issue. And she incorporated some uh, data and some information that people had not realized before about um, all the different sectors and sources that were contributing to China's air pollution problem and what was needed to move past that and to address it. 
So beyond the examples of that, you know, where really data helped inform uh, a public health crisis, and also, you know, you mentioned clean energy, uh, where, you know, really that's translated in the form of prices. Are there other types of data, other examples you can think of where, yeah, where basically data did lead to a sort of galvanizing effect on leaders around uh, energy policy or around climate change action? I think one of the clearest um, areas of potential where I see the ability of data to spark these kinds of changes on a transformational level that you're mentioning is really advances in data technology. So the idea of smart cities and smart infrastructure connected through the Internet of Things, IoT, for example, I think there's a lot of potential there for generating huge amounts of data that can be applied to clean energy and environmental sustainability. And I think I read somewhere that um, it's estimated that there are 2.5 quintillion bytes of data that are generated every single day. And a lot of folks like to quote the IBM statistic that 90% of the data that exists today was created in the last two years. And this is because people are increasingly living in cities and they're connected to the internet. We have smart devices. Almost everyone has a smartphone these days. And in our homes, we have smart meters, smart thermostats. There are buildings that are equipped with smart meters that are taking real-time measurements of electricity consumption. And um, transportation, too, is also increasingly being connected through some type of digital architecture. I think this is where we're really seeing kind of this, this confluence of data generation and efficiencies that could potentially be generated when you have more information about times of, of increased energy demand, for example, and then how to optimize an energy system to then meet those certain demands. Or people can, for example, adjust their lifestyles based on information that they receive um, just through the product of having these devices. And so, um, you know, there are some critics that say, well, these technologies are actually consuming more energy. This is Jevons' paradox, right? And leading to the creation of more energy-intensive data centers. But I think um, what we'll see is that these technologies are actually generating greater efficiencies and accelerations that will help to provide new solutions that were never possible before. So I think there's a lot of potential for us to also see data technology scale the pace of clean energy and solutions in a way that was never possible before. Well, you, you also unlock, I think, several interesting issues there. In addition to the sort of scale of data collection and the censored environment, there's also the question of, you know, who should be doing it? I mean, should it be government? Should it be civil society? Is it companies? I mean, I, IBM, of course, led the charge on, on smart cities a decade ago, uh, and we've seen various governments invest in it. So I'm curious, you know, under what regime should we be having this data? But also given the fact that, you know, we've seen a collapse in trust, you know, in terms of data sources and authority, too. So I'm curious what sort of new institutions you think we should or could create that could sort of both restore faith in data when it comes to these policy issues uh, and also do so in a sort of equitable, fair manner? That's a really great question. And um, I mean, I've been arguing for several years that I don't think that governments are really up to the task when it comes to providing the needed data to track progress against the Sustainable Development Goals, which were adopted in 2015 and set a global development agenda for 2030 and, and include targets for sustainable and inclusive communities. And I think that's because governments have many different priorities and many of them are resource constrained, particularly when you think about the global South and emerging economies. They just have different priorities and different items on their agenda, such as economic development and, as you mentioned, equity and just sustainability, for example. Um, but so I, I really do think that um, we're seeing new opportunities for other actors, such as private businesses and other institutions emerge to, to meet this gap. And so, for example, if you think about 
Coca-Cola, they probably have the best water quality data out of any actor, including the UN and any government in the world. And it's because they have operations in 200 countries around the world and water affects their bottom line. I mean, they're a beverage company. And so what if we got a company like Coca-Cola to release their data on water? I mean, that would be hugely transformational because they invest millions of dollars in collecting this data. Um, And then I also think that citizens can have a role in also contributing data. So through these smart infrastructures that I mentioned and smart cities, I think there's a huge potential for citizens to also contribute to needed data to fight uh, climate change and and, and to address a lot of sustainability issues. So I I just completed um, some papers that look at this potential in China. And so what the Chinese government has done is they've developed a smartphone app that connects with the popular WeChat messaging platform. And it has a funny name. It's called Black and Smelly Waters. But actually, I think it's really quite interesting because um, citizens, if they're going around in an urban area, they can take a photo if they see water pollution or a water body that seems foul and polluted. And then it gets uploaded through this app. And a local government official has seven days to then respond to that particular complaint and show how they address it. And all of the complaints, all of the ways in which government officials address those issues are put transparently on a government website. And so I think this is a really interesting uh, partnership between a tech company and also the government and citizens in China that are trying to introduce new modes of transparency, new modes of citizen-generated data. So I think there's a lot of potential in examples like this. Fascinating. Well, I, I, one other question, you know, the, the premise of Brighter Talks, of course, is that cities are a solution to these issues, to climate change, energy consumption, uh, all of these. But there's a, you know, a fascinating debate around how do we actually measure and determine our carbon emissions, our contributions to these problems. Um, and so I'm curious in your data, you know, is, is it possible to actually understand the complete scale of our actions? Because, you know, simply having this conversation, of course, requires far off energy production, uh, data centers that may not be sourced in the middle of cities, um, you know, these huge globe spanning supply chains that make modern life possible. And I'm curious, can we can we fully understand the impact of our decisions and the impact of our actions? And in doing so, can we, you know, cause those changes to ripple back through those supply chains? There's always these debates around whether individual behavior, for example, can really change the world or whether it's only policy. And so I'm curious how you've grappled with the question of cities, because there are many arguments that, you know, many people who will argue that those of us who live in cities lean greener lives. Um, But is that necessarily true when we sort of fold in all the systems that make urban life possible? You're pointing exactly to the paradox of cities. Um, So on one hand, people think that cities are the cause of a lot of our environmental sustainability problems by concentrating Uh, pollution and density and people and infrastructure built environment all together in a central place. And so I think there are some arguments where you have high density development that could be considered compact, but is not necessarily environmentally sustainable. So I'm thinking about Beijing, a city that I've called home for many years. And um, the downtown central business district of Beijing has a 25 time higher density than Manhattan. Wow. And so Yeah, so that's like a startling statistic. And um, that just speaks to the fact that density is not always a solution to environmental issues, because then you look at the magnification of pollution and congestion that they're facing as a result. Um, And so I I think you have, that's one side of the paradox. But then on the other side of the paradox, you do see efficiencies when you have compactness 
and densities and economies of scale. And I think many cities in Europe and North America represent that. So New York City, which has the lowest per capita carbon emissions per person. And then you've get examples of the Amsterdams and the Rotterdams that have been able to introduce closed loop and circular economy principles to make their cities much more efficient than the average urban area. So, so there's definitely this paradox. And I think um, the challenge that you mentioned, how can we actually truly understand our impacts and the, the consequences of our actions, particularly when supply chains are becoming more globalized and as cities become more efficient, much of that pollution or that activity is just being exported into the hinterlands, peri-urban areas sprawling out or worse yet being exported to another much farther place. And I think cities are just starting to grapple with that question from the inventory perspective and from the climate change evaluation framing as well. So uh, whereas most cities have developed or considering their immediate impact, they're not really considering that whole full supply chain of both upstream and downstream impacts that also uh, should factor into the sustainability of their actions. And so, I mean, I'm a strong believer, and I think the Paris Agreement also encapsulates this perspective that we need to have action at every single level, from the individual to local governments to companies and uh, organizations, whether they're nonprofit or, or civil society, all the way up to the national and the international scale. We need to really have action at every single level because time is running out. And we just don't have enough action on the on the table to really be able to have any, I think, reasonable chance of meeting our goals in these milestones that I mentioned for 2030 and 2050. And so I think um, the challenge is so great that it really necessitates everybody stepping up and, and doing their part. Well, one final question, um, you know, considering you earlier in the podcast, you were describing uh, the depressing data that you look at. And, you know, I think it's a fairly well-known phenomenon at this point that a lot of climate and environmental researchers uh, grapple with what's known as climate grief, where, you know, struggling to uh, communicate the depths of their alarm over the state of the planet. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, as a as a scientist, as someone who looks for honesty in the data and also someone who is, you know, we're both parents having this discussion, too. Uh, what gives you hope? What as a person looking into this data, what other weak signals do you look for and see in the data that gives you hope about the future trajectory of our world and our cities? In addition to, you know, the incredible growth in clean energy, I'm curious if there's other particular data points that you see, uh, you know, that another world is possible, so to speak. I would say two points give me hope. One is referring to the work that I've been doing over the last five years, trying to quantify and understand the role of cities and companies and individuals in impacting global climate change mitigation. And so just in that short period of time, I've seen an increasing mobilization of these actors that are saying, you know what, we don't need to wait for national governments to act. We can actually take the climate change challenge in our own hands and develop our own commitments. And I think that's really encouraging. So measuring the data, looking at the trends, we're seeing increasing numbers of cities that are stepping up to the plate and and saying, we're going to commit to 100% renewable energy targets or increasing our energy efficiency. And there are companies also that are saying, we're going to adopt an internal carbon price, even though our national government doesn't have any type of limit or price on carbon. And so I think those trends are really encouraging. And so that's why I'm working in this particular space to develop the methods and models to be able to quantify that impact and communicate that to policymakers. And then secondly, I would say the trend that gives me a lot of hope is looking at the youth and the youth engagement in clean energy and climate change. 
Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old Swedish teen that has really ignited this global youth climate change movement, was just named yesterday as Time Magazine's Person of the Year, which is so incredible. I mean, I was just at the climate talks and the one person I was so bummed at not seeing was her. I mean, yeah, Al Gore was there, Harrison Ford was there, Mike Bloomberg, yeah, whatever. I mean, like, I really wanted to see Greta Thunberg and I went out to the climate strike that she hosted on the on last Friday. And there were probably 30,000 people in the streets. I definitely did not see Greta, but I was there marching with all these young people and it was so inspiring. And I mean, I think that's one of the greatest things about my job is, is being able to work with young people and to teach them and to hopefully inspire them to be better than uh, our generation or our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation who made a lot of the decisions and set us on these different trajectories that are the reason why we're seeing climate change today. But I do think that this movement that Greta has really galvanized and that she really represents in her own life is incredibly inspiring. So I would say that those two points actually give me a lot of hope. Well, great. I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we named this series Brighter Talk. So I'm glad we can end our conversation on a bright note. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Angel. It's been an incredibly illuminating conversation and uh, really appreciate your insights. Thanks so much, Greg. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of Brighter Talks. 